The following episode contains recreated scenes based on FBI investigative reports, wiretaps, as well as witness and suspect interviews. The bomb that exploded beneath the World Trade Center was a powerful message that terrorism could strike us at home in America. But somehow that event has slipped our collective memory, lost to the horror of what happened next on 9-11, and our response, a war in Afghanistan, a second Persian Gulf War in Iraq. Trillions of dollars spent, nearly a million people died. To understand how this all came to be, we need to travel back in time, three years before the bombing, to tell a simple crime story. And like many crime stories, it starts in a city with a young man feeling marginalized and powerless, and then turning to violence. It's 7 o'clock on November 5th, 1990. And a 35-year-old father of three, an Egyptian immigrant by the name of El Said Nosser, gets out of a yellow cab in front of the Marriott Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. Nosser puts on a yarmulke and joins a crowd heading inside. Once in the lobby, he climbs the stairs to a second-floor ballroom. At this time, it is my pleasure, without any need of a fancy introduction, to introduce Rabbi Mary Kahani. On stage is a rabbi named Mayor Kahani. He's the leader of the Jewish Defense League, a violent Zionist group designated by the United States as a terrorist organization. And especially the Arabs, who for 60 years have massacred Jews, have raped women, who would wipe out Israel if they could. I don't, I don't weep for them. It's that simple. It's my enemy, and I don't weep for my enemy. Kahani tells the pack ballroom of his singular goal, to expel all Arabs from Israel. The Arab is a cancer in our midst. And you don't coexist with a cancer. A cancer you either cut out and throw out, or you die. He finishes, and a crowd gathers for a book signing. Nocer approaches with a gun in his pocket. Mayor Kahani drops to the ground. Nocer runs out onto Lexington Avenue, chased by angry Kahani supporters. He jumps into a yellow cab, draws his pistol, and orders the cabbie to drive. But this is New York City. Two blocks later, the cab hits traffic. Nocer hops out, the angry mob not far behind. Up ahead, a postal police officer is leaving work when he sees Nocer running toward him. The officer draws his gun, but Nocer fires first. The bullet strikes the officer in his chest. He's saved by his bulletproof vest. He returns fire and hits Nocer in the neck. Nocer falls to the ground. I'm Mark Smerling, and you're listening to Operation Trade Bomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Truth Media in partnership with Brillstein Entertainment Partners. My name is Zach Ibrahim. For the last 10 years, I've been sharing the story of my life, being raised by my father, Al-Sayed Nasser. 
Where my father was from in Egypt was called Port Fouad, and it was separated by mainland Egypt by the Suez Canal. 20 years before the assassination of Rabbi Meir Kahani, the Six-Day War is raging between Egypt and Israel. El Said Nosser was just a young boy. Every day he would have to take a ferry from Port Fouad to Port Said, where he went to school. And he would tell me the story about how during the war he would watch fighter planes falling into the Suez. And I think a lot of that really painted his, um, his understanding of the world. My mother was from Pittsburgh. She was raised Roman Catholic and uh, converted to Islam. But the night of her Shahada, the Declaration of Faith, the first thing she noticed was this green-eyed man who looked so Egyptian to her. A few days later, she got a call saying that one of the men from the prayer study wanted to get together to talk about potentially getting married. And my mother had hoped that it was this, this green-eyed Egyptian man that she saw, and sure enough, it was. They were married a few weeks later, and uh, I popped out about a year after that. My uncle, Ibrahim El Gabruni, offered my father a job as an electrician in New Jersey. Jersey City was low income, but it was, it was kind of magical. Um, the, the Muslim community there was huge. There were stores with Arabic on the front windows. Most of my memories revolved around going into some of the Middle Eastern shops and just buying the most normal Middle Eastern items in a store. Some of my favorite memories as a kid were my father walking me down to the old ice cream shop and getting a mint chocolate chip cone. And, you know, he really uh, just seemed to love spending time with his family. For a time, everything was fine. My father had had an accident at work. He was standing on a ladder and... Uh, was electrocuted and knocked off the ladder unconscious. He had third-degree burns on his arms that had to be skin grafted. I could, I could still remember the, uh, the grafts that they put on his, on his arm. He became withdrawn and depressed. He was unable to work, so he couldn't provide for his family, which was, uh, which was very important to him. He was given painkillers and antidepressants, and it didn't really seem to, uh, to help him very much. It just became more reclusive. Uh, he would spend most of his day sitting by the heater in the living room reading his Quran. And this was around the time that he began going to the Al Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn and Mejid al-Salam in Jersey City. Just across the Hudson River in Manhattan, on the 28th floor of 26 Federal Plaza, is New York City's Joint Terrorism Task Force. The task force has only 20 investigators, 10 from the FBI and 10 from the NYPD. Mostly, they spend their days collecting information on foreign political organizations operating in the city. It's a sleepy assignment, but that's about to change. My name is uh, John Antisef. I'm a retired FBI agent. Spent most of my working career uh, working on the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York. I partnered up with, with Lou Napoli, you know, the Brooklyn guy. He was about 12 years my senior. 
Lou Napoli. I'm a former uh, first grade detective uh, from New York City Police Department that was assigned to the um, New York FBI's Joint Terrorist Task Force. So in 1989, the JTTF was really just two squads. My squad, the international squad. So our portfolio back then was most of the Palestinian program. That included the, the, the PFLP, the DFLP, the PLO, General Command, Abu Nidal Organization, Hamas, Palestine Islamic Jihad, uh, most of all the North African terrorist groups for, for two guys. But they were all overseas. They were in Palestine. They were all over the place, but they weren't here. The only thing that was here were individuals that were maybe raising funds for them. But it was still going overseas. They, they, none of them were professing to do anything here. The Bureau is like a, a paper-pushing machine. They would collect information, put it, write paper, put it in the file, you know, because most of it, not most of it, all of it was classified. I don't want to be a guy that just reads and reads. I don't mind reading if it's, if it's giving me stuff that I'm going to use to really put a dent in somebody's head. You know what I mean? I get a call from a, a friend of mine who owned a hardware store out in Queens. He says, uh, I think I got something interesting for you. And he says, I got a guy come in last uh, week from a mosque. He says, a Middle Eastern guy. He said he wanted 50,000 rounds of AK-47 rounds. I says, how much? She says, yeah, that's what I thought. And I says, what do you need 50,000 rounds for AK-47 rounds? Oh, it's for training. I wanted to ask him, who was he what army was he training? But I just, so that's why I called you. So I says, what mosque was it? He says, the uh, Farouk Mosque. He says, okay. So we had individuals that, that we were talking to that would go pray there. And uh, this one guy, Mohammed, um, I said, Mom, do me a favor. You want to see what, if this is true? And he come back and says, yeah. He says, every Sunday, individuals from the mosque go to Long Island for firearms uh, training. And then, he says, they uh, then are sent to Afghanistan to fight with the Mujahideen. We found out that this type of stuff was happening almost every weekend. And uh, one of their goals was to recruit potential fighters to take part in the jihad and the struggle in the holy war in Afghanistan. We got up super early Saturday morning, and it was a very long drive from Jersey City to Calverton shooting range on Long Island. We got there, and I remember the group of men huddled by the trunk of one of the cars. There was a very distinct group of men. Mohammed Salama, he uh, wanted to marry my sister someday when she was old enough, um, because he was just so close to the family. And uh, my uncle Ibrahim al-Gabruni, Mahmoud Abu Hadima, who was a taxi driver in New York. His nickname was The Red because of his red hair. From what I remember, it was basically just an open field, and there were these hills of dirt at the back end of it. Just a bunch of different targets of varying sizes, of varying distances, and... As we approached, you could see there were a ton of different kinds of weapons inside, rifles and handguns, and there were other kids there. Uh, we each got a magazine. You know, I, pr I probably got maybe three or four turns in. And, and you know, it was, it was just, it was a fun day 
for me, you know, it was like just spending time with my dad. The most significant memory that I have from that day was my father had taken like a fully automatic machine gun and, and shot the legs out from under one of the bigger targets. And I remember how everyone cheered as it fell. You know, he, he seemed to be having a good time. They all seemed to be enjoying themselves. On one of my turns, there were these like orange, almost traffic lights that sat on top of some of the targets and I shot at one and it hit the light. And the light exploded and I, I wasn't, I thought maybe I was in trouble. But my uncle Ibrahim turned to the other men and he said in Arabic, uh, Ibn Abu, which means like father, like son. And I didn't really understand, but they all seemed to get a pretty big kick out of, out of the joke. We didn't know at the time, but the FBI was actually surveilling the shooting range. Yeah. Well, in this particular photo that I'm showing you is an individual holding a, uh, an AK-47 with these big sand dunes behind it. If it wasn't for the American car, you would think that this was in like Saudi Arabia or something like that, right? But it's it's actually out on the east end of Long Island in uh, Calvelton on a public range. El Said Nocer can be seen in these surveillance photos with Zach, his son. And there's photos of one of the guys Zach met at their home, the red-headed cab driver, Mahmoud Abu Alima, also known as the Red. The guy holding the AK-47 is Mahmoud Abu Alima, and he had gone to Afghanistan several times. You know, they used to go off, like for on their vacations from work to go fight or spend time on the front line and come home. And there, in another photo, is the guy who wanted to marry Zach's sister, Mohammed Salome. He's small, with a thick beard. We have one nice picture of Salome and Mahmoud all in the same frame. My father, Al Sayed Nasser, very much wanted to go to Afghanistan to fight in the war. My mother didn't want him to go, and my grandfather told him, absolutely not. Um, your family is your responsibility. Even even went so far as to threaten to disown our family if my father went to go fight. With that avenue cut off to him, I think he decided he was going to find some other way to contribute into that movement. <laughs> Mejid al-Salam was a very bright place. The sun, you know, came through the windows at that time of day. Friday prayers is usually around noon. The blind sheikh, Omar Abdurrahman, usually was the one giving the sermons. Like Zach's father, Dr. Omar Abdel Rahman had come to New York from Egypt, where he was the spiritual leader of a radical Islamic group. He was known around the world for his fiery speeches against Israel and the West many of which were recorded and circulated by his followers. There is no solution for our problems except for the jihad, for the sake of Allah. There is no solution, no treatment, no medicine, no cure, except with what was brought by the Islamic method, which is jihad for the sake of Allah. He was an older man. He, he wore a long uh, jalabiyya, and he wore this kind of little hat and sunglasses. And uh, he had a gray beard, and 
When he took his glasses off, you could see the, the gray in his eyes. Who's fighting the Muslim? Who wants to destroy them? The enemy that is spearheading the work against Islam is America and its allies. He spoke uh, very passionately. I, I didn't understand a lot of what he talked about, but it was clear to me even at six and seven years old that the people listening to him were impassioned by, by the way that he spoke. And prepare for them your utmost of your power and of steeds of war to strike terror into the enemy of Allah and your enemy. So we must be terrorists and we must terrorize the enemies of Islam and to frighten and disturb them and to shake the earth under their feet. It was after one of the Friday prayers. We were driving home, and um, you know, I, I could tell that my father was very passionate about his religion and, and the sermons that we watched. And I asked him, I said, "When did you become such a good Muslim?" And he said, "When I came to America and saw everything that was wrong with it." November 5th, 1990, started pretty normal. That morning for breakfast, my father didn't really eat very much. He just kind of pushed food around his plate and had a couple pieces of fruit. Most of my memories from the day were just school, coming home after school and um, doing my homework. After we had all gone to bed, my mother was sitting downstairs in the living room watching television and her program was interrupted by breaking news. Egyptian-born El Saeed Nothair was bleeding on the Lexington Avenue sidewalk. Shot by a postal service guard he encountered after jumping from a cab. Militant rabbi Meyer Kahani was gunned down as he made a speech at a Manhattan hotel. And it cut to a shot of my father laying in a pool of blood on the sidewalk and then being put into an ambulance. And just as that happened, her phone rang. It was Mahmoud Abhalima asking if she had seen or heard from my father. My mother was in shock and, and didn't really even respond too much, but said, I have to go. My mother, who came rushing into the room, and by the time I'd opened my eyes, she was already at the dresser, pulling drawers open and grabbing clothes and saying we needed to get up. My uncle Ibrahim showed up. We all piled into his car. We all stayed at my uncle's apartment in Brooklyn while my mother went to see my father. My mother just wanted to get to Bellevue Hospital just to be with him. She remembered that when they initially pulled up, there were a ton of news cameras and crowds that had formed at one of the entrances. So they went through a back entrance and took an elevator up to the surgical unit. And when the elevator doors opened, there was a, a SWAT member with his gun, and he lifted his gun and pointed it at the elevator. 
she was taken into the room and she said that my father was swollen to twice his side and she took his hand and said, I'm here now. Kahana died at Bellevue Hospital that night, but my father survived. And this was essentially her introduction to the path that my father had chosen. We have murder in the second degree, second charge of attempted murder, first degree, third charge is assault, second degree, fourth charge is criminal possession of a weapon. The NYPD is the first responders to everything because they are on patrol and they have detectives working 24-7. The chief of the detectives didn't want it to be an act of terrorism. He said it was a crazy Arab killing a crazy Jew. There was no indication at all of any uh, conspiracy of a nature that uh, has been spoken of. The facts indicate at this point it was a lone gunman who committed a homicide. And he didn't want to make it into a, into a major production, you know, that it had any terrorism ties. It's a lone shooter, da-da-da-da. They want to keep it as simplistic as possible. One shooter, good, he's got him, let's move on. So we did our investigation from the JTTF side, and the Manhattan squad, I think it was the 17th Precinct, they did their own investigation into the actual homicide. They did a straight homicide case, while we did our own terrorism aspect uh, of the case. The night of Rabbi Kahani's murder, NYPD detectives went to Nocera's house in Jersey City and searched it. They collected 24 boxes of Nocera's belongings and brought them back to the 17th Precinct. We got the evidence. Uh, we were able to have it for uh, probably, I want to say a day, maybe two days max. We found a lot of manuals from uh, the U.S. Army. And they were all about uh, small unit tactics and, and special operations stuff. And we found a lot of tapes of the preachings of uh, Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman. A lot of it was in Arabic, most of it was in Arabic. Didn't take us long to know that, you know, who Rahman was. He was a, he was a spiritual leader of an Egyptian terrorist group. And uh, the leader of the group was Z Zawahiri, who is now in charge of Al-Qaeda, and Sheikh Rahman, who was their mufti, their religious cleric. What we didn't know at that moment was that he was in New Jersey. Next time on Operation Trade Bomb. We begin tonight in a case that continues to ignite passions among Jews and Arabs. It's the case of the Egyptian immigrant accused of killing militant rabbi Mayor Kahana. Louis and I decided that we were going to have to do a, a penetration. Hi, John. Hi, Ahmed. How you doing? So now Imad, my dad just got in. It's like almost too good to be true. And it was in a lot of ways. Operation Trade Bomb is an Apple original podcast produced by Truth Media in partnership with Brillstein Entertainment Partners. 
Zach Goldbaum is our senior producer. This episode of Operation Trade Bomb was produced by Kenny Kusiak, Alexa Burke, Michael May, Meher Ahmad, and Alessandro Santoro. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling. John Liebman is our executive producer. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Bridget Busa is our associate producer. Sound design is by Kenny Kusiak with help from Alexa Burke and Alessandro Santoro. George Draping Hicks did the mix. Music by Kenny Kusiak. Our title track is Momentum by Kenny Kusiak. Voice acting by Ahmed Samir Hefni. Production legal by Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa at the Nord Group. Legal review by Linda Steinman, Abigail Everdell, and Alison Cherie at Davis Wright Tremaine. Fact-checking by Dania Suleiman. The production would like to thank Nuha Musla, Amr Latif, Ruhan Ahmed, Latisha Naidu, Ahmed Fateha, Hiba Hafifi, Juan Bernardo Custodio, and Evan Pishan. The production would like to thank Steve Emerson for letting us use audio from his archive. Please listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, and if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to write a review.